So as I get started, again, let me pray. Jenna, thank you for praying. and uh, Let us prepare our hearts to hear and receive the Word of God. Father, again, I, I thank you, Father, that in your goodness to us, you, you gave us your Word, that we can know you, we can know what is pleasing to you. Father, I, I pray, Father, that as we look at your Word, we could examine ourselves well, that we could recognize in our life what is pleasing to you. Father, may we leave here today loving you more because of the time we spent than when we first sat down. I pray all this in your Son's name. Amen. There's, there's reasons why this particular message I want to bring to you. What I have found as my ministry as a biblical counselor is uh, in these three chapters, it's a brief view, but it's a very clear picture of what a Christian should look like. I, I think it's helpful if you understand where this message came from so you can understand how it applies to us. As I said, these are red letters. The, the entire, once you get to verse 3 to the very end, everything is Jesus' word. Jesus is teaching a sermon. And you need to understand his original audience were not believers. What he was teaching was, here's what a follower of God is to look like but this is the way you people live. His audience would have understood. As we get into uh, the areas that deal with our heart and with sin, his audience understood what Jesus was getting at. He was rebuking them, and they hated him for it. So this was not a message to a group of believers. As Matthew pens it and puts it in the Bible... Matthew's audience were Jewish Christians. And in Matthew's gospel, unique then from the other three, it is to evangelize the Jews. So Matthew's audience is, is quite different than Jesus' original audience. <clears throat> and now, for us today, what does this mean to us? I think... The Beatitudes, verses 5, 3 through 12, give a a very clear picture of how a Christian ought to live. A very clear picture of how we should be known. And I think it goes on from there to highlight 13 areas of life where for the Jew, they legalistically had their life to look good by twisting scripture, But for you and I, it's 13 areas, at least 13 areas of life, where we are prone to have sin easily entangle us. I want to be really, 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 really super clear about this. This message is not a recipe of how to go to heaven. This is a description of what the person going to heaven should look like. Uh, I think you can use this tool, I recommend you use this tool as a means of self-examination, to look at yourself, examine yourself. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourself to be sure you're in the faith. This is a huge message. 
I, uh, as I move on, I printed out a quote from John MacArthur of the importance of the Sermon on the Mount. And it looks like this. It's on the back table. Hopefully you have it. I wanted to print it out so you wouldn't have to <clears throat> listen to me just read it. That would be just terrible for you, for your ears. So please read along with me. And this is from John MacArthur's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. In light of the preceding truths, we can see at least five reasons why the Sermon on the Mount is important. First, it shows the absolute necessity of new birth. Here's his point. You cannot save yourself. We, we our righteous deeds can't save us. This should be eye-opening to a lost world. I need a Savior. He continues, Its standards are, are much too high and demanding to be met by human power. Only those who partake on God's own nature through Jesus Christ can fulfill such demands. The Sermon on the Mount go far beyond those Moses' law, demanding not only righteous action, but righteous attitudes. Not just that men do right, but that they be right. No part of Scripture more clearly shows man's desperate situation before God. Second, the sermon intends to drive, and I see I have a typo there. Hmm. Uh, maybe your copy's different, I'm sorry. Uh, the sermon intends to drive the listener to Jesus Christ, man's only hope of meeting God's standard. If man cannot live up to the divine standard, he needs a supernatural power to enable him. The proper response to the sermon leads to Christ. Uh, we, we know that we are only pleasing to the Lord because of Jesus' divine righteousness that has been imputed to us. Third, the sermon gives God's pattern for happiness and true success. It reveals the standard, the objections, the motivations that with God's help will fulfill what God has designed man to be. Here we find the way to joy, peace, and contentment. Fourth, the sermon is perhaps the greatest principal resource for witnessing for reaching others for Christ. The Christian who personifies these principles of Jesus will be a spiritual magnet, attracting others to the Lord who empowers him to live as he does. The life obedient to the principles of the Sermon on the Mount is the church's greatest tool for evangelism. And I, I know you know the opposite. When Christians don't live in a godly manner, uh, it is a stench to a lost world. It's a mockery. And, and fifth, the life obedient to the maxims of this proclamation is the only life that is pleasing to God. That is the believer's highest reason for following Jesus' teaching. It pleases God. So diving into to the Beatitudes, uh, it, it's interesting from... Verse 3 through 12 in chapter 5, Jesus is giving 12 des descriptions of the person who is possessing salvation. And then he moves on giving 83 verses to draw attention to at least 13 areas where the, the, the Pharisees' religious system prized external piety 
And for you and I, it poses 13 areas of life where we may be prone to sin. Let me start by reading the Beatitudes. And if uh, you haven't opened your Bible, open your Bible to uh, Matthew chapter 5, and I will uh, prepare by starting reading verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, and they will be called sons of God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What do these blessed statements mean? How should we understand them? Uh, let, me, let me start by, <clears throat> blessed is the poor in spirit. Theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? This is for the person to recognize, I am spiritually bankrupt. I cannot do anything for myself. This bankruptcy, this this poor, has nothing to do with material things, but it's the person who recognizes their utter need for a Savior. They are totally dependent on, on somebody else for salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. And understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit should affect our prayer life. If I realize and recognize my utter dependence on the Lord, it should say something about how I pray. Do I recognize what my greatest need is? To be poor in spirit is to recognize I cannot do for myself what only my Savior Jesus Christ can do. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. It's interesting that I don't mind embarrassing myself in front of you. I, I can remember thinking that to be somebody that mourns, it's just somebody that's sad. And you go to a funeral and you'd see mourners. Uh, that, that's not it. it. It's mourning and being broken over your sin. It's, I would even say, it, it's not just being broken over your sin, but sin of the people around you. To be broken for them. Uh, it's to be broken over a world that we see is just, to our eyes, appears to be getting eviler and eviler as the days go. That, that should cause the Christian to mourn, because ultimately the sin is against God. The one who mourns is the one that has an attitude of repentance. Consider Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says this, he goes, this is a trustworthy statement. Jesus Christ died for sinners, which I am chief. Are you, are you the chief sinner in your home? Or do you live with the chief sinner? Do you, do you recognize your dependence on a Savior? Do you see yourself as the biggest sinner? 
if if you don't recognize yourself as the biggest sinner, you're you're missing what God calls us and what He calls us to be, and you're you're missing what it is to be poor in spirit and to be somebody that is mourning over sinfulness. I I cannot be looking at others thinking that they are worse than me and truly be mourning over my own sin. It's just it's just piety. It's just fraud. Verse 5, blessed is the meek. Some translations will say gentle. They will inherit the earth. The one who is meek is the one that is patient and content. Uh, I'm going to quote J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle makes the following comment. He means those who are of patient and content spirit. They are willing to put up with little honor here below. They can bear injuries without resentment, and they don't easily take offense. Think about it. In in your home, uh, with your family, with your friends, whatever it may be, do you can you sit back and say, God, I trust you in the, in the midst of a, a difficult situation? That's what it means to be meek, to be gentle. I don't need to control this. I don't need to, I don't need to take revenge. I need to trust God. I need to recognize his sovereignty in my life. That is the person who is meek and who is gentle. It, I'll sum it up this way. The this gentle person is the person that can truly just sit back and say, God, I know you're in control of this. And, and we can say that because God's promises are everywhere. He promises, I'll never leave you, forsake you. He promises he is working all things together for good. God is good. And for, for a man or a woman to be gentle and meek is to recognize who God is. Six is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. It's interesting, Jesus is teaching here with an analogy of of necessities for life. For for hunger and thirst, for food, for drink. And, And here's the thing, for the person who is saved, we are utterly dependent on Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us. Ryle again makes a statement about hungering and thirsting. Jesus means those who desire above all things to be entirely conformed to the mind of God. They long not so much to be rich or wealthy or learned as to be holy. Blessed are all such. And we see from Psalm seventeen fifteen, they shall wake up after God's likeness. They sh- I'm sorry, they shall awake up after God's likeness, and be satisfied. We hunger and thirst to be like God, and and there we will find satisfaction. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a desire to grow? Do do you look at your circumstances and and the tensions in life and the trials in life, and, and do you have a desire to grow? Do you desire to grow in righteous living? Do you desire to grow in righteous thought? Seven, blessed are the merciful. They'll be shown mercy. Uh, Mercy 
being merciful is the one who forgives when sinned against, has compassion for others when they sin. God will show mercy to the to the merciful. Uh, Luke, in chapter six, verse thirty-six, it gives a command, tells us to be merciful, just as your Father God is merciful. Let me give you an example of of a picture of showing mercy. Uh, Joseph, when he hears that his wife-to-be, Mary, is pregnant, uh, he knows he's not the father. But what does Joseph say? I will divorce her quietly. He didn't want to bring embarrassment to her. He wanted her, in the midst of what appeared to him to be sin, he wants to be merciful to her. How about for us, when, when somebody sins against us, would we rather make a big deal that everybody knows we've been sinned against? Or do we desire to show mercy? To be merciful is to allow somebody to fail without great condemnation. To be more concerned that they have sinned against a holy God than having sinned against you, perhaps. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. This is talking about the person that on the inside, what is going on in their heart is pure. It's not the outward actions that the Jews were concerned about. And we're going to talk a lot about that. But this is what's going on inside. It's the person who is truly holy. It's not a fake on the outside, just showing just it's pious fraud, but it's a pure heart. God is speaking in, in 1 Samuel 16. And I, I know you, when I read this, you're going to be familiar with it. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We, we are trapped to look at the outward appearance as we look at things. But not God. He sees our heart. He sees the impurity. He sees our thoughts. He knows us so intimately well. And the point is, we need to be men and women that are pure in heart and striving to be pure in heart. Growing in being pure in heart. Verse 9, Blessed is the peacemaker, for they'll be called sons of God. Uh, peacemaking involves conflict resolution. It's, it's, are you one that seeks forgiveness quickly when you offend another, when you sin against others? Are you willing to make acts of restitution when need be? Do you refuse to seek revenge as well as humbly serve others? Particularly, do you humbly serve your enemies? J.C. Ryle makes this comment, blessed are such peacemakers. I, I love this, and I've never considered this. They are doing the very work which the Son of God began when he came to earth the first time, and which he will finish when he returns the second time. Jesus Christ was the peacemaker. And we are called to be peacemakers in the same way. Are you a peacemaker? Do you forgive quickly? Is forgiving others something that's hard for you? Thinking that you've been sinned against rather than looking at it, it's a holy God that's been sinned against, remembering how much you have been forgiven. Verse 10, Blessed are those who persecute you because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, 
this particular persecution we don't see in this country. This would be more the violent part of persecution that our brothers and sisters in third world countries may face. Because in verse 11, uh, he changes the word when they insult you or persecute you. And that would be more of a verbal when people mock you for, for righteousness. Maybe you're in small group and you're trying to help a friend by bringing them the truth as, as you are doing core questions or as you're caring for one another and, and they lash out at you. That, that's the type of persecution. You're being persecuted for righteousness sake. You're trying to help your sister and there may be persecution. Being, you know, as I look at this, I find for Christians, most of us will probably find more persecution at this time of history in the church from other believers than we will outside the church. But how do you respond when you are offended? How do you respond when you are insulted? In verse 12, Jesus ends the Beatitudes and he calls us to rejoice when we receive persecution because of him. This doesn't mean we receive persecution because we've, we've been a jerk and unkind to somebody, but this is for righteousness sake, where we have been just being God's servant in somebody's life, and they persecute us with their words. Verse 3 through 12, uh, being the description of the one going to heaven, Jesus is making a, uh, a transition here from verse 13 to 16. Jesus is now calling the hearer of this message to, uh, to be different. And he uses salt and he uses light. Uh, J.C. Ryle commenting on these three verses about what we are to look like in a lost world. Surely, if words mean anything, we are meant to learn from these two figures, salt and light. That there must be something marked, distinct, and peculiar about our character if we are true Christians. It will never do to idle through life thinking and living like others. If we mean to be owned by Christ as his people, listen to this, we have grace, it must be seen. We have the Spirit, there must be fruit. We have a, any saving religion, there must be a difference in our habits, our taste, our turn of mind between us and those who only think of the world. It is perfectly clear that true Christianity is something more than being baptized and going to church. Salt and light evidently imply peculiarity. It's going to be a tongue twister with my cold. Peculiarity, uh, both of heart and life, of faith and practice. We must dare to be singular and unlike the world if we mean to be saved. Let me put it to you this way. If you want to be an influence in a dark, evil world, you need to look different than the world. That is exactly the wellspring uh, disciplines. First, it's your heart, and then because of your heart, you are making an impact where you live. How are you living? Do, do does your family members, do, do they see the, the time that you've been with the Lord? Do they recognize that there's something different? Are you growing? 
verse 17 through 20, Jesus is drawing the, to the preeminence of Scripture. He says, I did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He is telling us God's word is essential for life and for godliness. The audience would have known that the Pharisees were all about the religious externals. Jesus is now, he's getting, shifting back to God's word, what God's word has always said, and he's going for the heart. Uh, Jesus is preparing this through his word, and, and I want to be really clear that the only way we are going to have the mind of the Lord is by knowing the mind of the Lord, and that's in his word. The Pharisees practiced righteous acts. The audience knew it. And as a means of eternal life, Jesus Christ is pointing them to their need for a Savior. And verse 20 sums that up. Because I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. For us, for our righteousness, to surpass that of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, we need Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Uh, there's nothing, the point is there's nothing, as we go into the areas where we're prone to sin, there is nothing in right behavior that is going to save us. There is no good works that is going to save us. And the only righteousness that will surpass the Pharisees is Christ's righteousness. The Jewish audience knew the Old Testament. They knew a Messiah was coming. They knew the Messiah was the Savior. And just for us, our Savior is that righteousness. They knew to look for it, but they failed to see Him in the same way we know that Christ is our righteousness. Again, in this sermon, Jesus is now making another transition from the description of the one going to heaven to the demands, how we should live. And now Jesus is taking the hearers of the sermon. He's, he's going to dissect their religious system that has failed to give God glory. And I hope in the same, as that curious Jewish, Jewish audience, uh, you will be amazed at what God's word says and equally is revealing to you. The first area... That, he, that Jesus deals with, Matthew 5, 21 through 26, is murder. And the Jews wouldn't realize this is the third commandment, thou shall not murder. It's, it's embarrassing to tell you, but this is the truth. Growing up in a religious system, I tr- truly would have told you, as, as a non-believer, if you would have said, how do you know you're going to heaven? I would say, well, I'm basically a good person, and I would say, I haven't murdered anybody. Uh, and I'm being honest. I mean, I truly associated, I can go to heaven because I haven't murdered anybody. And, and that was the Jews. Remember the rich young ruler from Matthew 19? And he says, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, obey the Ten Commandments. He says, I've already done all that. Well, they've twisted the, and I'm going to show you how they twisted the word so much that they could obey the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus says, well... Sell everything you have and give it. And that's when he walked away, ju- just broken, because he did not want to do that. Uh, but Jesus is expanding this third commandment where he says murder. He's now saying anger. 
And let me tell you, this was always God's design. If you go back, and you don't need to go there, you know this story. In Genesis chapter 4, it is the first crime ever committed. It is Cain murdering Abel. God did not say to Cain, why did you murder your, your brother? He said, why are you angry? He, he dealt with the heart. Jesus deals is dealing with the heart now as he's bringing this message. God has always dealt with the heart. But, but the Jews, and like many of us, we can twist God's word to think, well, I haven't done this. Let, let me show you as we move forward. In uh, the second area, Matthew 5, 27-30, he talks about adultery. And it really ties to the third point, which is divorce. And, and here's the thing. The, the Jews had worked out a system that they would give a certificate of dismissal. That's all that they needed for divorce. So they would give a certificate of dismiss, dismissal. They can no, now go out and have another partner, and it wouldn't be adultery because they had a divorce. They had absolutely twisted God's word. God, God's desire was their heart. But they saw nothing wrong with their lust. They were more caught up in the, the physical act of adultery than what was going on in their heart. And Jesus is, is rebuking them for it. Jesus, in, in speaking on adultery, he's talking about radical amputation. He's telling them, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And, and it's the same for us. For, for you and I, we still today have to, to radically amputate the things that are going to tempt us to sin. It, I, I remember counseling a person who, who had a a habit of gambling. And uh, I mean, it was as stupid as saying, don't get on the 101. He, he, I'm serious. He could not drive up the 101 with, with going in and gambling. Uh, it, and it could be something as, as, as minor to what seems minor to us. Stay off the road to the drunk. Stay out of the bar to, to the person that, that just is not content. Maybe it's stay off Pinterest. For, for some of my, don't go to Facebook. But you might need to remove something from your life in order to be holy, is this point. And, and here's, there's a little side note I have to give you here. Jesus is not just talking about deeds. I, I'm sure in this audience, we know when there is a sinful action, we recognize a need for repentance and, and we desire to repent. What Jesus is getting out here is when you're thinking, when your heart's desire does not line up with his desire, I need to repent of sinful desires. And the Jews, and probably some of us, sometimes just look at the externals and we miss what's going on in the heart. Again, the third area, divorce. They, they, the Jews had twisted scripture. You go back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. God has always been clear on his desire for marriage. That it would be one man, one woman, and it would last until death would separate them. But they twisted God's word. 
with a certificate of dismissal. You know, as Christians living in this country at this time, we should be mourning the state of marriage, not just in the church, but the state of marriage. We should be broken over. This is a sin against a holy God, how we have devalued marriage in our country, in this world. The fourth area where we are prone to easily be entangled is by our oaths. And and this audience knew it. Uh, The tradition was, everything was very grandiose. When they they were going to do something, they would always just make a big deal about making an oath and swearing. Uh, And and Jesus is condemning the flippant, profane, hypocritical oaths that were so common. And, And here's the thing, sometimes it could be flippant, making the oath, and then not doing the oath and not your word being your yes being yes and your no, no. You can do that flippantly as well. And, and the point here that Jesus is talking about is our words just need to be simple and they need to be full of integrity. I need to do what I say I'm going to do. Uh, five, eye for an eye. Uh, they twisted God's word where they thought vengeance belonged to them. They had, the Pharisees had an ordinate concern for their own personal rights. If self-interest dominates your justice, you are replacing it with vengeance. Let me say it again. If self-interest dominates justice, it is replaced by vengeance. As humans, we often desire to retaliate. We want to pay back. Maybe your eye for an eye looks like giving somebody in your house the silent treatment. Maybe it is just avoiding people. The sixth area that Jesus is is talking to this audience about that applies to us is to love your enemies. Jesus is contrasting Jewish Tradition kind of love with God's kind of love. MacArthur makes this comment regarding this. Nowhere did the Pharisees' humanistic, self-centered system of religion differ more than God's divine standard than in the manner of love. However, I'm sorry, nowhere had God's standard been so corrupt as in the way the self-righteous Pharisees viewed themselves in relation to others. Let me ask you, how are you doing at loving your enemies? How are you doing at loving sometimes difficult people that you live with? In this picture here, that this love that, that Jesus is talking about, again, when he's saying to love your enemies, it's the agape love. It's the same love that's used every time in Scripture describing God. It is a God that sent his son from heaven to earth to die. It is a death to self. It is giving, showing preference to others. That This love is, even when you've been sinned against, you prefer the other. The, and we're kind of turning here, we're getting into chapter 6, but the first six areas Jesus addresses, he addresses murder, they twisted scripture, adultery and divorce, they twisted scripture, oaths, vengeance, and love. 
this audience knew what Jesus was saying. He understood the rebuke. They understood their rebuke. And Jesus is pointing out how they overlooked their own heart. And now moving into chapter 6, we, we're now going to be looking where the first six are dealing with inward things going on in, inside of us, at the core of us, in our mind. And now he's going to be looking at, at outward things. He talks about giving. Uh, the Jewish tradition was they made a big deal. I, mean, I, I can't imagine what this would have looked like. You know, verse 2 says, do not announce it with trumpets. You know, they would give money and do-do-do-do. I can't imagine what that would look like, but but the Jewish audience realized they what they were doing and what how they practiced their giving. They made such a big deal about it. And I, Jesus goes on and says, "Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing." I I don't know how we could possibly ever do that. I I always know what my hands are doing, uh, but here's what Jesus' point is. This is an act of worship. You you are not doing it out of for anything other than worship to God. God's command to the New Testament believer is that the person gives cheerfully. Let me ask you, do you see your giving as an act of worship? And I'm not just talking even just money, I'm talking about even your service. To, to the body, to believers? Do, is it an act of worship or do you feel compelled to do it? Do you want to do it because you love your Lord or you do it because uh, I just think this is the right thing to do? These folks that Jesus is rebuking gave to be honored and be seen by others. And God, Jesus is calling them do it to worship God. The the eighth point is prayer. And I really find this interesting that Jesus spends more verses on prayer than any other topic. Uh, that, that means something to me. Uh, and here's what is going on here. Jesus is condemning the, the way the, the Jews were praying. I mean, they made a big deal. They wanted to be noticed. They just got really loud and they wanted to speak loudly. They want everybody around them to know that they were praying. Jesus said their prayers have already been answered. You know, they're not, there is no reward for them. But, but what scripture calls us to be poor in spirit, we, we come to prayer, not to be noticed by others, but it's our utter dependence on the Lord. It's going back to being poor in spirit. Is blessed are those who are utterly dependent on God. It, again, I'm going to say it. If being poor in spirit should impact our prayer life. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, 18. It, it, it's the will of God. It says, be joyful, pray continually, give thanks in all things. This is God's will for you. God's will for us is that we would be men and women that pray. Does does your prayer life need to change? I, I just read an interesting book, and uh, the author I, I 
I was blessed by it, but I would give caveats if I was recommending it. But the, the point of it is, he, he said most people don't pray because they get tired of praying the same for the same five things the same way day after day after day. If you need help in prayer, go to God's Word. Use God's Word to pray. Uh, recognize your, your audiences of one. I know sometimes prayer can be hard. But it's a way we worship God. It's our dependence on Him. Fasting. Again, the Jewish tradition, when they fasted, they did it in a manner to impress others. You know, Jesus' words say they, they would try to malign their face, that it would just look like they, they were just absolutely suffering. Again, it, these outward practices that Jesus is dealing with, the of giving and uh, praying and now fasting. Jesus is just talking about these are acts of worship. I, I need to be worshiping God as I do, when I, as I pray, as I give, and, and as you're fasting. And again, I, I'm going to ask you, do you give, do you pray, and do you fast in a, in a way that's worshipful? Or do you do it in a manner that would be pleasing to others that somebody might notice that you are doing something that you think is spiritual? The tenth area Jesus is dealing with is uh, treasures in heaven. The problem Jesus is calling our attention to is not wealth, but it's the pursuit of it. It's being more caught up about material possessions. Uh, and you know, I realize this is a, such a fine line. We have to be responsible. We need to, we we need to prepare. We need to support our families. But do I depend on the Lord or do I depend on myself? And I realize it is a truly a hard line to understand of what it is to be wise and what it is to be trusting the Lord. Number 11, again, as I pointed out in prayer being the most, the number two area that God's, Jesus' words speak to is do not worry. Uh, it's interesting in this passage three times, uh, there, there aren't a lot of commands in the Sermon on the Mount. Most of this is truly a rebuke to the original audience, but Jesus gives three times the command, do not be anxious, in these few verses. Verse 25, verse 31, verse 34, he says, do not be anxious, do not worry. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus says, do nothing, even the necessities of life, with worry. Uh, MacArthur sums up those, speaking of the three verses, the three commands, uh, verse 23, again, 31 and 34, four reasons why worry, being anxious, is wrong. It's unfaithful to our master. It's unnecessary because of our father. It is unreasonable, unreasonable because of our faith. And fourth, it's unwise because of the future. He continues, making reasonable provision for tomorrow is sensible, but to be anxious about tomorrow is unfaithful. How are you doing at shepherding your heart from worry? What, what is it that you may be prone to worry about? Is it out of God's reach? And it's a rhetorical question, of course it's not. 
twelfth uh, area where we're prone to sin would be judging others. The, 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 the Jews, the Pharisees, were, they were oppressively judgmental. They were condemning in their self-righteous, egotistical judgments and unmerciful to others. Uh, verse 2 here in chapter 7 speak to the wrong view of others and verse 3 and 5 is the wrong view of ourselves. when we judge we have a wrong view of the other person and because we make judgments we view ourselves kind of like being God and, and the the situation what Jesus is bringing to them he says take the log out of your own eye before you look for this speck in another uh, there are very few situations where I'm counseling uh, where you're not having to deal with this, where people have made judgments about, if it's a marriage situation, about their spouse, about other people. We, by our nature, we simply can judge. And when we judge others, we typically fail to be merciful. Remember what we said about showing mercy to others. And and it's interesting because the 13th area very much ties into the 12th of judging others. And it should, if you have in your Bible little subtitles, it'll say, ask, seek, and and knock. Here in the conclusion of the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount, ultimately Jesus is drawing the hearer back to trusting God. When, When we're making judgments about others, we typically are failing to trust God. There is no need to judge others if we're trusting God. Verses 7 is the bridge between judging others and the golden rule, which is in verse 12. And here's the golden rule, you know it. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophet. So, So here Jesus is taking two areas where we are prone to sin. One is judging others and one depending and trusting on God in the midst of our difficult situations. And and he sums it up by saying just treat treat others like you want to be treated. How do you want to be treated when you've sinned? Do you want people to show you mercy or do you want people to, to look at you and act judgmentally towards you? How are you doing at treating others the way you want to be treated? In Matthew seven fourteen, the the narrow and the wide gate, Jesus concludes his teaching and he warns that there is a narrow and a wide gate. One gate, the narrow one, leads to eternal life, and the wide one leads to destruction. The narrow gate is dealing with sin at the heart level. It, it, it's not our righteous deeds and actions that are just absolutely rubbish. He's getting to the heart here. These are frightening words that you see when Jesus says in verse 21, Not everyone who said to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's it's frightening. And this is the difference between the, the narrow gate and the wide gate. The fruit of the tree, Jesus warns in seven fifteen through 24 the hearers 
that there's going to be false prophets. He, he tells his listeners, there's going to be people, and, and I'm sure he was talking about the Pharisees. These, these Pharisees are taking you on the wrong track. And today, we still have false prophets. We, we have the, the half gospel masquerading as the whole gospel in many churches. They're false prophets. We have, we have what's common today is a, a secondary, another view of how man is to be sanctified. We, we see in our world what God clearly calls sin. We say it's not sin. There, there are many false prophets. This isn't just tied to what was going on as Jesus walked in the face of the earth, but the false prophets are still with us. Again, Jesus warns, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. And I'm going to continue reading. I'm in verse 22 of chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we go to Grace Bible Church? Didn't we, didn't we come to Wellspring and go to Build? And in your name drive out demons and perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. Jesus is now providing wisdom for his listeners. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Where is our foundation? Is, is it on the Word of God? Is it in pleasing the Lord? Is it in our pious fraud of the things we might do? But everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like, who does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught with one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. MacArthur, in his closing statement on on this, says the following, It is a contrast between divine righteousness and human righteousness, all which is unrighteousness. It is a contrast between divine revelation and human religion, between divine truth and human falsehood, between trusting God and trusting self. It is a contrast between God's grace and man's work. How about you? Are you amazed? Are you amazed by the Lord's teaching? Are, are you amazed how clearly he could see uh, how prone we might be to our good works? thinking that uh, we're a bargain for the Lord. Are you amazed?